one of the biggest hurdles to innovation is the fact that we are siloed in our various disciplines. The more you have faculty have to work with people from other disciplines, move them around in terms of teaching teams. You need to get people exposed to different knowledge bases in order for them to be able to expand their way of thinking and identifying new solutions. Hi, I'm Eli Woolery. And I'm Aaron Walter. We may not think about it too often, but the choices that we make can end up defining who we become. Dr. Sheena Iyengar, the S.T. Lee Professor of Business at the Columbia Business School, makes the psychology of choice and decision-making the focus of much of her research. She wrote a best-selling book on this topic called The Art of Choosing, and she just published a new book called Think Bigger. We talk about Sheena's new book and also dive into why decision-making has become a focus of her career. We also have a lively discussion about design thinking and its shortcomings and talk about some of the myths associated with innovation. And one more thing before we get to the show. From our listener survey, we've learned that many of you would like to hear more from Eli and me. So we've built a new segment of the podcast where we discuss some of the highlights of the episode. But you'll only get the bonus content if you subscribe to our Substack. So head over to dbtr.co slash substack. That's dbtr.co slash substack. And join today for free. Thanks for listening and for subscribing. With Freehand by Envision, we've built a best-in-class visual collaboration platform used by thousands of enterprise customers, inclusively priced for the whole organization at 50% the cost of Miro and Mural, and now with the Intelligent Canvas, allowing teams to maximize their impact by adding intelligence, automation, and connection to the canvas. Try Freehand by Envision today for free at freehandapp.com. This episode is brought to you by Fable, who make it easy to build accessible, inclusive products. Learn more at makeitfable.com and later on in the show. Sheena Iyengar, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thank you for having me. Sheena, you've got a new book that is fascinating about innovation. We want to jump into that. You've been investigating the decision-making process for a long time now. Your previous yep. book was about decision-making and this book, uh, your new book, though it's about innovation, it also investigates decision-making as well as it, as sure. it pertains to it, innovation. It absolutely is. I would say the art of choosing was descriptive and think bigger is prescriptive. Perfect. That's a great summary. What draws you to this idea of decision-making as you know the way that the mind works and, and how it serves us? So I think that as human beings, choice is the only tool we have that enables us to go from who we are today to whom we want to be tomorrow. And so that's really the tool we can use for finding the best of what exists, as well as for creating something that helps move us forward. It's an interesting way to think about it. Let's talk a little bit about innovation. How do you define the idea of innovation? So. Schumpeter, the great economist, said that innovation was a new combination of old ideas. And the way I define innovation is to say that it is a useful, and I put useful first, novel combination of existing ideas that 
come to solve a complex problem. So that's my definition of innovation. So it requires that, you know, you have a problem that you're, you know, fussing around with, and then you are going to create a solution, which first and foremost has to work, meaning be useful. And the way it differentiates itself from what already exists is that it's a novel combination of existing elements. So, Sheena, one thing that's tied to this ideas of innovation is also this concept of genius. And there's there's been this sort of pushback lately about the idea of the lone genius, the Einstein, the Sir Isaac Newton, that, that really drove things forward. At the same time, there are these individuals who have you know, expanded the scope of human knowledge and who have great creativity. But you know, according to your book, there's maybe some methodology behind that. Maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of the methods for being creative. Yeah, I think we love the idea of the lone genius, but you know, while Einstein did some amazing things that were felt magical, we shouldn't forget that he had a wonderful education when he was a patent officer for five years. And in that process, he learned from lots of people because he was the one who was looking through so many patents. In fact, he himself dabbled in patents and an earlier version of the typewriter, the refrigerator, or even dabbled and made an interesting blouse that never went to market. And, you know, you can say that about almost every great so-called genius that there was. They got exposure. And so that's really important. It wasn't just that a magic happened in their brain. They actually had access to knowledge. And that second, they learned not just through themselves asking the right questions, but they also learned through access to other people. Talk a little bit more about that. What kind of relationships helped some of these people move their big ideas forward? Well, for example, Edison, you know, we often give him credit for making lots of different innovations from the light bulb to, you know, the record player. But in fact, if you look at, for example, the light bulb, first of all, he had a huge lab of people that worked with him. Second of all, he learned from a lot of people who weren't in his lab. In fact, one of the critical pieces of making the light bulb work was an African-American inventor at the time who was a freed Black who helped solve him some critical pieces to make the light bulb. And that's an example of a very famous person that had his fame as an inventor. There's really no such thing as a famous ideator that didn't get help. So is, is collaboration sort of a core tenant of innovation? So in order to innovate, you do need to be able to learn from what others have done and what others know. Sometimes you can do that on your own by reading, by talking to people, not necessarily collaborating with them. And sometimes you actually do have to collaborate with them because they just have a different way of looking at the problem that helps you solve important pieces. More often than not, people are more likely to innovate because of their ability to collaborate with others, but it doesn't always have to be the case. In every case, you're learning from others, but you may not be necessarily physically collaborating. So we're, we're building on what... You're what building on whatever came yeah. before. Right. For example, the great French polymath Henri Poincaré, who invented in so many different areas, 
Well, he ends up becoming the inspiration for both Einstein and Picasso. Now, did either one of them officially collaborate with him? No, but did they learn from him and take his ideas in a different direction and get inspired by him? Absolutely. So what are the core elements that create opportunity or just kind of a ripe, fertile soil for innovation? Is it, you know, exposure to different people, different ideas? What are those specific pieces? Well, I think in order for you to successfully innovate, whether it's you're solving a personal problem like, you know, how do I figure out my career path or whether it's solving a professional problem like how do I get this start off off the ground or how do I grow my company's market share by another 5%? In every case, you have to be able to do three things. The first is you have to really be able to define your problem that you're trying to solve for in a way that's concrete and solvable. Most of the time we fail because we just don't define the problem well enough. It's too vague, too abstract, too big, too small. The second thing you want to do is you have to be able to, after defining the problem for yourself, you have to be able to say, okay, well, I know how people that I know have solved it or think about it. I know how people in my industry think about it. Who else has had a similar problem and how did they solve it? That ability to search far and wide is critical to your ability to think out of the box. Out of the box ideas don't just magically appear in your head. They come from your ability to expose yourself to relevant knowledge bits that come from far and wide. And then the third thing you need to have in order to innovate is you need to be able to take all the bits that you've gathered, organize them in a way that enables you to combine and recombine in so many different combinations so that you can see what are the different alternatives and pick the best. What about the scenarios where there's unexpected innovation? So refrigeration and air conditioning is one example where you set out defining a problem. I want to solve, you know, how to keep food cool and accidentally discover this technology could be used for other purposes like air conditioning a space. There are lots of examples out there where the person who's innovating was headed in in a different direction and stumbles upon another idea. How does that fit into your model? Absolutely. As the ideator, you need to start with a problem just because it gives you focus. Will you end up solving a different problem along the way? Sure. It's just that If you don't have a problem you're trying to solve for and you just create an idea for the sake of an idea, nobody knows what to do with it. And there's lots of solutions out there or wild ideas out there in the marketplace that never go anywhere, not because they aren't necessarily cool. We just don't know what to do with it. Sheena, there was a post you did on LinkedIn somewhat recently asking ChatGBT what the difference is between design thinking in, in your most recent book. And we want to get to the AI thing too, because we think that's an interesting thing to chat about with you. But there are some overlaps between what you just outlined in your framework and the approach of design thinking. And I think there's also some differences too. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those similarities and differences. So think of design thinking as having three big phases. And each of these phases are unto themselves processes. The first is going out and doing research on your customer sort of become an anthropologist. The second phase is you brought back all this knowledge. Now let's do a brainstorming. 
session where we collect up, you know, our knowledge and now let's come up with a whole bunch of different ideas. And then the third is, okay, we've got all these ideas. We're now going to take the idea that or ideas that there seems to be some consensus around and now let's prototype do some form of visualization or a mock-up so that we can see what it is. So those are the three main phases, I would say, of design thinking. What Think Bigger is, is you start by defining the problem. And the defining of the problem comes from, is driven by the idea or by the creator. And in defining the problem, Yes, you learn from customers. You also learn from experts. You learn from as many different sources as you can to try to understand the problem. We're not assuming that there's one main source of that. We're not actually trying to be the anthropologist. We're trying to be the broad scientist. The second phase is search and combine. I'm going to search to find all kinds of elements. I'm not relying on my customers to tell me what I need to edit or what, how I need to fix it. Customers were only telling me about the problem. They're not telling me my solution. My solution phase is I'm searching all over the place for different pieces that I can bring together to combine in a new way. And that's essentially choice mapping is what I call it. That's the alternative to brainstorming. And the third big phase is what I call the third eye test. So rather than doing a prototype, a quick mock-up, is in my method, I'm saying, and even before you can get to the stage of a prototype, and I'm perfectly fine if you want to go do a prototype, but I think first and foremost, you have to understand how to collect meaningful feedback on what your idea is, not for the sake of finding out if other people like it or not, but for the sake of learning how to further edit the idea before it's even worthy of prototyping. And so the third eye is, do you see what I see? Is there alignment between what I have in my head and what you, an external person who isn't in my head, are envisioning? There may be more overlap than initially appears because I do think, you know, one problem I feel like with design thinking is just the way that it's been implemented over the years. And I think there's a lot of fault to be put at the feet of my own institution at the Stanford D School for sort of popularizing it, but not maybe handing it off in such a way that it's always used, you know, to the best of its capabilities. But I do think a key phase that's often overlooked is that defined phase where, yes, you go out, you talk to customers, try to understand their needs, but then you do need to define the problem in a way that's really concrete and something that you can Yes, ideate around and then build prototypes around. But I, I do think there's, you know, there's kind of a synergy between the methodology you're talking to and design thinking of its approach in a way that's a bit more, more rigorous, which I think is kind of left out a lot of time in the more popularized versions of it. I'm sure there's variability also in terms of how it's practiced. But the way I think of it is if Henry Ford had asked people what they wanted, they would have all said they wanted a faster horse and buggy. Customers will tell you what's wrong with what's existing right now. Experts would tell you what has already been tried and what hasn't worked so far. If they knew how to solve the problem, they would have solved it. There's an interesting tension, though, between the idea of let's go to customers and understand their needs. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can innovate with that methodology starting out where you can come up with some new ideas. You can come up with some edits. 
let's mm-hmm. say something is already working pretty well, customer insight is, is absolutely helpful to give you some important information that you otherwise would not have gotten. And it can give you edits. And, and, and let's be clear, a lot of times just defining the problem and learning what's going wrong might be enough to solve it, right? We're talking a complex problem like, how do I figure out what's my next career move? How do I increase growth of my firm? I want to think about this new startup I want to create around lots of things like reducing violence or how to create some kind of a new product that helps reduce stress amongst teenagers. So the anthropologist approach is helpful in defining the problem, but you, the ideator, have to really take up the various information bits from watching your customers, learning from experts, learning from outsiders, and then from you, the ideator, to know what it is you really want to solve for. And that's what leads to the defining of the problem. Let's talk about where innovation can go sideways, though. There's a great example of like Dean Kamen and the Segway and this idea that there is a fundamental problem with mobility and we could create a new way for people to get around that's sustainable, that's practical, that's inclusive, et cetera. And it was going to revolutionize and change cities and change so many things. And the Segway is really like, we see you know police officers right around on it at the airport and kids every once in a while. It's an innovative idea, but they didn't think about the details of the problem of like, what if I have a child? And I have to, you know, take my child to school. What if I have to bring my groceries home? They just didn't think about all the details that were mm-hmm. associated with that. So it fails pretty quickly. So with design thinking, like talking to customers first, the think big approach, which is instead of going directly to that, is you know starting with a bigger problem, bigger idea. Each kit has the potential to go sideways. And I'm curious, like with the innovative approach of starting with a big problem. How do you keep it from going sideways like Dean came in Segway, where you've got an idea of the problem, but you don't understand the details of the problem well enough for execution to actually bring a product to market that is going to be practical for the world? This is also one of the reasons why I say it's really important to do the third eye, because I'm envisioning in my head, and I'm obviously imagining what the creators had in their head, I'm envisioning, oh, well, everybody's going to be doing this thing and, you know, there's no longer going to be cars on the road. It's going to be people scooting around. I'm envisioning that in my head. And I think what you want to be able to do is do what I call the third eye, which is I describe my idea to you. Now, it's easy enough for you to say, oh, that sounds cool. People do that all the time, particularly if I tell you this is a great idea. Wouldn't it be amazing? And particularly if I'm like some famous guy like Steve Jobs who's telling you this is this is a really great idea. This is going to revolutionize transportation. You're going to nod your head and say, yes, yes, yes. If I really want to know how you're going to perceive and understand my idea, I just describe my idea to you. I don't tell you whether it's good, bad or indifferent. I don't ask you whether you think it's good, bad or indifferent. Bad idea to ask you what you think. You don't know anyway what you think and how you feel about it yet. So I just describe my idea and I come back to you a few days later. I say, how would you describe my idea? Like, how would you do it? And if you do it that way, you actually learn what stuck. Would they take away? Did they even remember, by the way? 
And in the process of the retelling of your idea back to you, they're going to make some edits. In the process of making those edits, they're teaching you ways in which you would imagine using it. The truth of the matter is you're only going to use something that you can imagine yourself using. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Methodical crafts coffee and tea for people of all kinds. They've been around and roasting for more than eight years, and they are certified coffee nerds. On their site, you'll find useful brewing guides that'll teach you how to turn your coffee brewing chore into a beloved ritual and really dial in that perfect cup. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Roaster's Choice subscription and start every day with a cup of methodical coffee. I have to say, without fail, every morning when I wake up, I am excited to drink their coffee because it is fantastic. Methodical's packaging, their website, the entire experience, it's just beautifully designed. Craft a cup that you'll love with Methodical Coffee by visiting methodicalcoffee.com. And use our discount code Design Better to get 10% off your first order of coffee or tea. That's methodicalcoffee.com. I've got two young kids who can be a little bit on the noisy side, so my wife and I have gotten used to using closed captions on those rare occasions when we get a chance to sit down and watch a show together. Lots of us have experienced the benefits of products that were initially designed for people with disabilities, from closed captions to dark mode on your phone or laptop to voice-to-text to electric toothbrushes. Designing products for all people, regardless of abilities, leads to greater adaptability, usability, customization, and personalization. With 1 billion people worldwide living with disabilities, Fable Engage helps UX teams collect feedback from people with disabilities to help you build more accessible products. Fable Upskill provides custom accessibility training for digital teams to gain skills to build inclusive products. The best digital teams like Shopify, Microsoft, and Spotify partner with Fable to make better products for everyone. We're big fans of Fable, and we know you will be too. Learn more by requesting a demo at www.makeitfable.com slash designbetter. That's www.makeitfable.com slash designbetter. And now, back to the show. I'm curious about another problem a lot of larger companies run into, Sheena, and one that comes to mind is Kodak. We had this guy, Paul Safo, who's a futurist into class yesterday, so the story's kind of fresh in mind. But you know, Kodak's often thought of as this sort of company that was doing great in the film era, didn't really pay that much attention to the digital, and, and then digital cameras just kind of ate their lunch. But in reality, they actually invested a lot. They invented the first digital camera, and over the years, they tried many different attempts at creating digital camera products that just failed. And to some degree, it was you know, pushback from maybe middle management who didn't believe in these ideas or had a stake in the ground around their existing products. But maybe you could talk about companies and what prevents them from entering a new era with their products or being disrupted by other younger companies. The benefits of design thinking was that it really did highlight the value of being the anthropologist. And it brought together the marriage between the anthropologist and engineering. And I think Clay Christensen, which is what you're referring to now, 
the value of his contributions to innovation was he really showed us the sort of curse that exists in large organizations, that the more successful you become at doing X, you know, the more invested you are in the knowledge you've already developed so that even when you see something that could be better, it's such a startup cost in your mind that you're not willing to pivot, right? And that's the curse of the large organization. You saw that at Kodak, you saw that at Xerox Park. I mean, just think of all the various amazing, you know, ideas that they passed up on, you know, including what ends up becoming Apple, just because the middle management just weren't willing to see what their innovators saw. So I think that's the reason why that's happening. And I think that the way you get around that is that companies have, I mean, this is going to be very controversial, but companies have to be willing to do two things. One, the corporate boards have to be dedicated to having, if not a subcommittee on the board, then to have an advisory committee that actually has power of scientists and technology, like a science and technology committee that's really about innovation. Because otherwise companies will get, you know, stuck in their ways. We all do. And there's nothing unnatural about that, but you need an entity that's responsible for literally getting people incentivized to come up with new solutions. So you need science and technology to essentially do two jobs. One is identify all the various technologies or innovations that are happening both in your industry as well as in other industries and sort of organize them into what sorts of categories could we put them in and what kinds of problems would they solve for. And then you also need that committee to identify what sort of problems exist currently in my organization that would benefit from new ideas. So you need that at the high level. And then at the lower levels of the company, you actually do need to be shifting people from different tasks around. You need people to be essentially exposed to different knowledge bases in order for them to be more open to innovating. What does that look like, shifting from one knowledge base to another? Well, depending on the organization, like let's say I'm a professor, right? And I said in management, I actually think that business schools and other academic institutions, one of the biggest hurdles to innovation is the fact that we are siloed in our various disciplines, which, you know, it hurts our ability to innovate. The more you have faculty have to work with people from other disciplines, put them on committees, move them around in terms of teaching teams, research collaborations, centers. You need to get people exposed to different knowledge bases in order for them to be able to expand their way of thinking and identifying new solutions. So, you, know, you had a recent interview with the Globe and Mail that you discussed your book and some of these sort of popular myths that surround creativity and innovation. First one was that creativity is innate, you either have it or you don't. Why isn't that true? I mean, it became popular because of the work of Sperry, who got the Nobel, but then his work got sort of overly interpreted and I guess misunderstood. I mean, his work just looked at the effects of what happened if the two sides of your brain tended to get severed. And 
And then people began to assume that the right brain was for creativity and the left brain was for analytical thinking. And we made the assumption that different portions of the brain took care of different things and that some people just happen to be stronger in one side versus the other side. Or in order to get people to be creative, maybe I needed to do stuff to light up your right portion of the brain. All of that got debunked in the last 20 years. So essentially, there's no such thing as creative tasks versus analytic tasks. Essentially, everything happens in learning and memory. Both portions of the brain light up, whether you're doing a so-called, you know, analytical task like a math problem or a so-called creative task like writing a poem or making a painting. And so, yes, the Internet is still filled with the right-left brain tests that we love to take, but it's actually not true. You might have a preference for certain kinds of activities. You might prefer to do math over making a painting. You might over time develop a better skill for it because you're really spending the time to do more and more of it and you like it. And that's fair. Do you think that our educational institutions have a part to play in that too? Dave Kelly has this idea of creative confidence and that in large part in in earlier years in school, when you look look at almost any toddler and their finger painting and singing and being creative, but it eventually just sort of gets drilled out of us as we're taught to like sit in our seats and do, you know, memorization, that kind of thing. Do you think that's uh, another component of this? I agree and disagree, right? I think essentially it's not as black and white, right? So I think what is a fair thing to say is that we have learning that comes in the form of unduly structured, unduly rigid, unduly about just, you know, stuffing stuff in the memory. And we're not giving you enough training in how to take the stuff that's in your memory bank and now taking those pieces and combining and recombining in multiple combinations. They also need to be able to exercise their curiosity. We don't usually leave room for that in curriculum. Another one of the myths that you debunked in that article was that creatively designed offices yield creative ideas. You know, I don't know if we know definitively that space has like what role it plays. It is interesting that, you know, Google, which was the leader of creating the most fun space, was actually invented in a garage. And you see that for a lot of stories of the great innovators, right? They kind of came out, they were rich. The idea of the great company was started in some, you know, fairly humble circumstances. The studies on the role space plays are very undefinitive. It's clear that space might make you feel happier and as results might make you more likely to stay at that company and to the extent that retention is important, make a nice space. The best study, if we could call it that, the best controlled example of Does space make a difference to your ability to innovate? Really comes from Bell Lab, I think, where they had a really ugly building that was very quickly erected around World War II, and then a really beautiful building built in the 60s. And, you know, a lot of times the people were cross-pollinating across those two buildings. You know, you actually had slightly more Nobel Prize winners from the ugly building than from the other building. I don't know if that means anything, but essentially, You actually have just as much amazing innovations from Bell Lab coming from both buildings. 
it would make sense that these unprecious spaces would create more, you know, opportunity for more creativity. Just going back to your core tenet of innovation that we're broadening our aperture of possibilities, what is possible. And if you're in a very precious space, it says you can't spill a can of paint, you can't tape things to the wall, you can't sort of explore and behave in, in lots of different ways that may or may not lead to some innovative idea. I don't know how that sits with your perspective of space and creativity. So I would say that the most important things for you when thinking about your space and your ability to be creative is it has to be a space in which you feel comfortable thinking. And that could be different places for different people, but you need to have a space in which you can sit and think and say, okay, what do I know? What do I still need to know? What pieces do I have? What could I create? That's one thing you need to have, some space where your mind can actually do its work. And the second thing that's got to be important for you is access to information that you don't have. Whether that's having colleagues that are helpful, which I believe it was probably critical in the case of Bell Labs and MIT, colleagues that are willing to chat with you and tell you what they know, or whether that be you know, access to databases or Google or be picking up the phone, wh whatever it is. I think those are the two things you most need. How do you think this plays with, you know, there's, there was this pendulum swing towards remote work during the pandemic, and it seemed to have swung back towards requiring people in the office or in some cases, maybe a hybrid scenario. How does that play with this idea of being in a comfortable space, but also needing access maybe to colleagues and, and information? So I think you've described it very well, right? I do think that when we need that thinking space, provided your home is a place where you're not going to get distracted, can be a very good place. At the same time, you could be stuck in a vacuum where you really are going in circles and circles and circles because you don't have access as easily to other people that can help you. And then coming into the office sometimes and being able to talk to people can be really helpful. And how do you create that really beautiful balance? I mean, the tricky part about that is that varies from individual to individual and also probably task to task, right? Certain tasks, you need more people to help and other tasks, you may need less. Let's go back to the AI, which we sort of hinted at earlier. And there's mm -hmm. been these immense developments, obviously, over the last six months many kind of unexpected emergent behaviors from some of these large language models. You had an interesting post about AI and creativity. I think many people are afraid that AI has the potential to take away creative jobs that we thought were sort of safe from machines, but maybe there's another way to think about that. Yeah, I think AI is only going to make us more creative. I mean, will there be some unintended negative consequences? Of course, there's, there always are from every innovation. Innovation is never purely positive, nor is it purely negative, right? I think that, you know, when the camera was invented, we were worried that uh, painting and artistry as we know it was going to be done. But, you know, Impressionism came along. But what did the camera do? It gave us a new way to see the world, taught us something. And that led to Impressionism and Cubism. And then even photography itself has become an art form. When the computers 
simulation of chess came along and Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov. This was a really big deal. My God, this is the end of human intelligence as we know it. We're nothing but cogs. Reality is that the presence of computer simulations of chess has actually made humans become better chess players. I think the same thing's going to happen with ChatGPT. The more we're able to use it and those who do take the time to use it, they'll see more ways to combine the same materials. They'll get bits of pieces, as I was talking about before, that they might not have thought of. And that'll enable them to come up with solutions that they wouldn't have thought of before. So I I think on balance, it's going to make people more creative, not less. Last question for you here, you know, thinking about innovation as like a compounding energy. We innovate on a certain thing, whether that's AI, medical advancements, et cetera. And that creates new opportunities for additional innovation that's exponentially better and better and better and better. And it feels like at this position, we're we're into the 21st century here a little bit, a long ways still to go. What does compounding innovation look like as we go through this century? I would say so far in the 21st century, the big innovations have been, well, my favorite is the James Webb Telescope. Mm, Yes. I mean, that's just incredible, the advances we've made in space. I would say the other one was the mRNA vaccine you know, which I understand now feels boring or maybe it became so political that it's just not sexy, but my God, it was an amazing innovation and it's absolutely changing the face of medicine. Uh, And I think the third is going to be AI and machine learning, just because I do think it's changing the human frontier of both creativity and innovation more generally. Now, what the world's going to look like by the next century, I'm not going to be alive by then. So not even going to make a prediction. But from 1900 to the year 2000, wow. Think about those two worlds. Sheena, where can people learn more about you and your new book? You can follow me on LinkedIn and feel free to go to my webpage or on Amazon and order a book email me. I'm always happy to chat. Fantastic. Your new book is Think Bigger, How to Innovate. Your previous book, also a great book, The Art of Choosing, both good reads. Advise everybody to check those out. Sheena, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. 
or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetter.com slash podcast. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.